I'm just going to say it. I think typically men are the ones to blame because we are tend to be the ones that struggle the most with evolving. What evolving means, maturing is simply one thing, owning my life. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. As a result of such amazing feedback and the intricate questions that were fielded from our first podcast, number 11, I invited Bill O'Haran back on the show. Bill was kind enough to fly back in from Austin, Texas to sit down with myself and another special guest, Stephen Patch, the founder and CEO of Bay Coast Behavioral and Ocean State Behavioral Agencies. His agencies focus on the mental and behavioral well-being of children and adolescents, something that him and Bill share deep passion for. As you will tell, Stephen and Bill had excellent complementary insights as well as chemistry. Not to mention, in true Bill fashion, he just delivers. And if you thought he got deep during our first conversation, get ready for this one. There was a plethora of ground covered. But if I had to sum it up, the key takeaways I'd say are, there's no greater pill, class, degree, exercise, song, lecture, podcast, book, or religious sermon more powerful than simply laying by yourself. And it's the one thing so few are willing to do. It's hard. In this conversation, you will learn how by doing this quote-unquote simple habit that it will help with discovering vulnerability, being a better spouse, raising kids, and just being present with others. In the spirit of being present, this is a podcast that I'm going to recommend that you not multitask, rather stay present with Bill, Stephen, and I. So, without further ado... Please enjoy my conversation with my dear friends, Bill O'Haran and Stephen Patch. So typically, I like to thank my guests, or guests, I should say, or shall I say guests in today's case, which I'll tell you why later. But today, I want to thank the listeners because your follow-up, your feedback, and all the insights that you've shared has put us in a position today to bring back Bill O'Haran. Bill, hello. <laughs> Good to see you. Adam. Thanks so much for... <laughs> yeah. Well, we also have another guest, a special guest with us today that was so moved by our conversation last time that he drove here from the border of Rhode Island to come in today to spend some time to ask you some questions and also share some of his insights and feedback. Stephen, do you mind introducing yourself, giving us a little color on who you are and what motivated you to be here today? Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate that, Adam. I'm Stephen Patch. I'm the owner of Bay Coast Behavioral, and it's a company that works with children and adolescents and adults with mental and behavioral health challenges. And the motivation for being here is I think Bill is very insightful in getting to the core of some of our real bigger issues in life. And I was really thrilled to be able to meet Bill, and I appreciate you having me here. Thank you. Tell me about what moved you anything in particular? I know the whole conversation we had was powerful, but was there one thing in particular that stands out as a takeaway that you had from our conversation? I think Bill spends a lot of time really 
empowering individuals and letting them own their own power, own their own future in a sense. And it's a hard way that he does it because it's a struggle to get through that process. And Bill seems to bring it around in a way that I really think a majority of a population could really accept and appreciate that. And it really moved me in a lot of ways. And it was highly effective. I spent some time alone in my room. (laughs) Great answer. So, Bill, if you don't mind humoring me, and I should say some of the other listeners, we put out a couple days ago, we asked those who had any questions to write to us. And we did have a few. So before we get rolling, if you don't mind addressing some of the questions. Absolutely. Awesome. So so thank you. And And like I said, thanks to listeners. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) First question was, how can people care Or how do you get people to care about the 100% of the 50% that they're responsible for in a relationship? Well, it's a great question. In fact, the three of us were talking about it uh, about an hour ago is caring is really going into what I care about is what do I desire in life? It all comes back to the very core of what it is I want in my life. And ironically, the 53-year-old me has certain wants, but the eight and 10-year-old inside of me that's still alive and still an incredibly vital force in every single human being. What does that eight-year-old want? He wants to be held. He wants to be heard. He wants to sing his song, whatever he wants to do. And the more anybody can tune into that desire, what they really want in their life, they start caring about themselves. In other words, we have to care about that eight-year-old living inside of the inner child work is the most powerful work. How do we get access to that? By sitting. So if I care about young Bill, if I care about my deepest desires, I am automatically going to care more about my wife. I'm automatically going to care more about my clients. There's a trigger inside the limbic body of the human being. It's called empathy. It's what makes us mammals different than the rest of the species out there. Mammals have this natural need to be empathetic and to relate. The problem is if we're not relating to self, it's hard to relate to others. It all comes back to self. I wish it was easier. I wish I could give you a little pill and say, this is going to make your husband care more, your wife care more. The only way to care more and to get at your 50%, your 100% of your 50 is to care more about that part of you that's soft, that's tender, that wants to be held and wants to be loved. Caring other is simply caring for self, but doing it for another person. And it enriches self by caring for somebody else, but you have to start with self, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So is that kind of like if you're going down an airplane, is it similar to you've got to... <laughs> yeah, you got to 100%. You got to put your air mask on first. People talk about self-love right? It sounds almost kind of grandiose or new agey, like self-love. It's great. No, self-love is sitting quietly and going back. I call it the kitchen table meditation is when you sit quietly in your room, you're 50 years old, 40 years old, 30 years, whatever it is, you sit quietly and you go back to when you were in third grade at your kitchen table and you feel what it was like to sit there. You look, you really ground yourself in that kitchen table environment when you were in third grade. That's where all the work starts because that young boy or girl has all these desires and there's all this activity and there's all this emotional activity being soaked up. And then we move on and get older and we forget about that piece. That's where the work is. It's all about self. And then I care so much more about my wife if I've been able to let myself be vulnerable and feel that part of me that really wants to be in the world. Good answer. (laughs) (laughs) I hope. So we've got a bunch of questions, but I'm just going to narrow down to maybe three or four more before we talk about what we're going to talk about today. So you had really driven home the point about sitting by yourself and letting feelings come up. What's the goal of that time and those feelings and self-reflection? So the goal of all quiet work, sitting alone by oneself, is to allow everything that hasn't been felt before to come up. Key is, what do we do with it? 
this is really the question. What do we do with it when it comes up? What's the actual exercise? So what's interesting is the word relationship comes from Latin relatus, which means to carry back. A relationship is you, Adam, to go sit quietly, allow those inner longings and desires, fears, joy, sadness to come up. Understand that those emotions are driving your activity with your spouse. That eight-year-old, that 10-year-old, that 15-year-old, those needs, those desires are really driving a lot of your behaviors and reactions. There's only one thing in the world you can control, Adam. One thing, it's how you feel. So if we don't spend any time understanding how we feel, how can we actually relate? So going back to the exercise of when you sit quietly, you bring those emotions up, you realize, oh my gosh, I'm responding to my wife the way I responded to my mom. Wow, I was unconscious of that. Now I'm conscious. Here comes the relatus. Here comes the carry back. Now I carry back that insight to my spouse. I call carrying it back to the altar of the marriage. The marriage is sitting there and I go back to my wife and go, you know, sweetheart, I realize I'm still angry at women or I'm still angry at womankind. I'm still angry at the matriarchal energy that's living inside of me. So the exercise is to understand what's driving me and then to share that at the altar with my significant other. Relatus means to carry back, carry back that information and those insights. When I'm doing it, Bill, when I'm getting out of it, it seems that I have I think we all have it differently. To me, sometimes it feels like I carry some shame there and that I act in a way that in outbursts or inappropriate to the people I love the most because I'm not willing to embrace my own issues. So when I release those issues, it's surprising how much more love I can give. That's one of the greatest things of sitting quietly is when you're able to be vulnerable with yourself, by yourself, your desire to reach out. There's, I just read some research And I'm going to come back to this, but I just read some research on when people emote by themselves, their ability to touch and impact other people, it's exponential and it comes back to caring. So what Steve just described is he's caring enough to go back and undo some of that vulnerability. That shame is so big, the guilt, the shame, I'm not worthy. But once you touch that in self, you realize that that person's going through the same thing. So you almost want to go be present for that person to help them in their ability to go and touch their shame or touch their sadness. In other words, it's almost like you have this longing to help somebody else because you realize what a powerful release it is when you do it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So Bill, here's a good question that I really liked was when marriages fail, do you have an opinion? And I know that you're below, I know that you're <laughs> below thing I have, <laughs> or any type of like scientific statistic regarding who's more at fault, i.e., is it more often the man or more often the women? The first is that in every dyad, in every relationship, there's one party typically that starts to move forward in terms of their own inner growth. And often it creates a fear in the other person that they're going to lose that person that they thought was X, and then they're starting to evolve and they're starting to do therapy. They're starting to kind of go inside and having all these insights. What typically happens is you can't blame either one. We talked about it earlier that it's very difficult for some people to get to that place to start going inside and doing the inner work. So the gap gets bigger. So you can't really blame. There's a great research piece, and I'm going to have to come back to it. There's a great longitudinal study of a lot of interviews of five, 10, 15 years later, interviewing folks that got divorced and where they're at now. And the biggest thing that the folks that hadn't processed that they needed to own more of their reactions in the relationship, when a person 10 years out realized I should have owned more, 
They're much better with the relationship. They're much better with a the divorce. They're actually become friends. It's the inability to own the stuff that you do in your relationship is the biggest problem. I'll come back to gender right now. I'm just going to say it. I think typically men are the ones to blame because we are tend to be the ones that struggle the most with evolving. What evolving means, maturing is simply one thing, owning my life means owning my reactions. It means owning my vulnerability, my sadness, my desires. Can I own that? Can I realize that everything that I do, I'm responsible for? Everything I've created in my life, I'm responsible for. Yes, my wife can be angry. She can say silly things, all that kind of stuff. I just have to own my reaction. And it's really difficult for men because our first response is to blame and to push off responsibility. Why? A lot of times, we talked about the last podcast, our moms tend not to set up enough boundaries. So we tend to continue to act like adolescents right through our lives. So I would say to answer that question, typically men struggle. I had a long conversation with a good friend who's really struggling in his relationship. He's like, Bill, what do I do? And I looked at him, I said, listen, you got to do what you don't want to do, which is stay, do the work, and don't worry about the outcome. Don't worry about where the relationship goes. Just stay present and go inside that little boy who's miserable. It's why you're drinking. It's why you don't like your job. And he's like, I'm not quite sure. I'm like, you got to go in. So it's really tough to say men are always going to be the issue because I know a lot of relationships where the women don't want to go in because that little girl inside the 40-year-old mom is still angry at dad but doesn't want to own that piece. She sees the husband. She reacts as if it's the dad, but she blames on the husband and will not give up that ghost. I've seen a lot of in couples counseling, a lot of times where the woman's like, no, it has nothing to do with my dad. Don't blame my dad. So that's a long-winded answer of, I don't have a great answer, but I do know it's all about owning your stuff. And sometimes there's just one party of the two doesn't want to do it. My interpretation to defend men, that is. <laughs> so you're saying the majority of men, but it's the result of the relationship with their mom. It's a big piece. The bottom line with every marriage is eight relationships. It's not one. So my relationship with my wife is eight relationships. It's my relationship with the matriarchal energy. It's my relationship with the patriarchal energy. It's my relationship to self. It's my relationships to relationships. That's four. My wife's just kicking up all four of those archetypes. She's got her four archetypes. It's her relationship with her dad is really ruling how she responds to me. Her relationship to her mom, that sadness, that longing, whatever it might be. So there's eight relationships going on. And how do you own those? You got to get quiet and you got to understand, wow, I'm responding to my boss or I'm responding to my kids the way I used to do it as a 10-year-old. Boom. That, oh, gosh, that is me. Oh, that's me. How do you break that? Can you break that? Yes, 100%. Change happens. As Jung says, the only way you change something is you accept it. Carl now, Jung? Is that Carl friend? Jung, yeah. the man. Yeah. He is the man. You accept it. Now, the quick and not thoughtful enough pieces. Oh, just allow it to, oh, I accept the fact that I'm immature. No, the way you accept it is you have to go back and re-experience the emotions that are creating the actions. So you're working backwards here. So how do you change a behavior? Therapy or sitting, really both. I sit quietly and I realize I'm really angry. Wow, why am I angry? I don't feel fulfilled in my life. Oh, okay. I didn't do that certain job 20 years ago. And oh God, I can't believe that's still lingering. Holy cow, that's lingering. Okay. I re-experienced the feeling. I cry, I cathart, and I realized, you know what? It was what it was. Now that might take two years to get to it was what it was. And don't get to it too quickly. How many times my counseling pack goes, no, I can feel the energy. It's not done. That piece is not done. Once it's done, you accept it. You'd be blown away what happens energetically to that person when they really accept the fact that my dad was never going to love me because his dad didn't love him. 
I'm just making that up. I'm just saying that once you accept it in your limbic system, in your heart, in your belly, like a lot of tears, you're like, wow, okay, I've accepted. You close that loop. The universe doesn't like, once the loop in that limbic body of around that emotion of loss, whatever it might be, closes and it's done, literally that next day, you are a slightly different person. Literally the cells in your body around that loss moment have changed. That's how powerful it is. Now it takes work. I know that sounds like, oh, that's great. I'm going to do it tomorrow. It's sitting, (laughs) it's on the ground, it's feeling old emotions. Man, it is the most beautiful, hardest work. I say marriage, just like the universe, there's three forces in the universe, creative, preservative, and destructive. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Create, destroy, preserve. Marriage is a destructive force that creates creativity, and then it becomes preservative of the family the hearth, and then you're actually creating next generation. So marriage is designed to destroy you. It's designed to break you open. And if you don't accept the friction of marriage and allow yourself to be broken open, you don't really get to the good stuff. (laughs) All right. On to the next question. (laughs) Sorry, that was too much. That's more than you asked for. Man, no, that was good. I'm just sitting here. It always (laughs) takes me a minute because I'm digesting everything that you're saying. So, uh, all right, next question. How much of what we do act feel is our own versus what we have inherited and observed from our childhood. So it's kind of some of the same stuff, but it's phrased a little differently. So the question is, if I respond in a certain way, did I come into this lifetime with it or did I absorb it? I believe it's often you can't tell the difference. We could go really, really deep in terms of when they say a soul comes in and chooses their relationship, chooses their parents. I mean, that's pretty deeper stuff. Maybe that's another conversation, but I believe If you sit quietly, you'll realize I just had that endemically. I had that natively in me, latently in me, or God, that's my dad. Man, that's my dad. Man, that's an imprint of his voice inside me. So I don't want to skirt the question. It's really tough to know. I think ultimately it doesn't matter as long as you go in and be with that emotion and just dance with it and weep with it and laugh with it and bring it to light for as long as possible. You're going to know whether it was yours to begin with. Or is your mom's? Wow. We did have a lot of other questions, but I just had to kind of boil it down. So I apologize for anyone who's listening. If your question wasn't asked, we're going to get Bill back on here (laughs) and you'll get another uh, bite at the apple. Dose dose of the madness. So Bill, I have a question for you. At the end of the day, sometimes doing the work can be easier than engaging or committing to doing it. How do you get someone to commit to doing the work? That's a good one. That's a really good one. That's why I think sales and social work, which I think I'm a little, I'm both, is the same thing as trying to get somebody to sit still enough to be willing to close their eyes and peel it back a little bit. What I mean by that is, so the question is, how do I get somebody to care enough about themselves to actually start doing the work? A little more simpler than that, even. Just you're in a relationship, whether you're married or you're not married, and one party's not engaging. They're not seeing the value of doing it, but they want to be together. They're committed to being together, but they're both not happy and they're not engaging. What do you do? If one party is engaging self and wanting to evolve and the other isn't, and you're trying to get the other to start engaging, right? That's the question. The best way to start is to be vulnerable and honest and candid. So for instance, if you and I are in a relationship, Adam, and I don't feel like you're giving your even a piece of your 50%, I literally can't change. I can't change you. I can't get you to care. What I can do is just being open and vulnerable and start talking about how I feel, 
how our relationships making me feel. I can go back and talk about when I was a kid. And I've done this quite a bit in counseling sessions where I can't get people to kind of move the wheel a little bit. I start talking about my inner life. I start talking about my dad or I just start talking. When you start hearing somebody talk about their vulnerability and their sense of rawness and just what life experience is for them, it can trigger it. It might not always do it. In fact, that's one way to start, but just being candid and vulnerable, it's amazing. People start to respond. The next way is to ask enough questions. What do you care about, Adam? Well, I care about the Yankees and all that kind of stuff. Okay, great. What else do you care about? What did you care about when you were in third grade? What did you care about when you were in fourth grade in Mrs. Murphy's class? What did you care about? Oh, well, I really cared about like animals and stuff. Oh, you getting people to talk more about themselves, a little bit more from the gut and the belly can work. But in the end, Stephen, it's a great question. I say it a lot of times. It might not be this lifetime. It just might not. All you can do is put in your 100% of your 50. And I mean, with no resentment, with no frustration, just be so real and raw and open and hope for the best. Let me ask you this. This is actually was a question that someone had asked me a couple months ago to ask you and candidly, I forgot. (laughs) But you just reminded me because you talked about what you get people to do. And the question that was lobbed to me was, how do you choose? Well, it's a multi-pronged question, but the one I'm going to share with you is how do you choose a therapist? Because a lot of people are anti-therapists, so they finally agree to going to a therapist, and they feel like it's hit or miss. So I don't know if you had any advice on how to choose. Because I'm sure, as good as you are, I'm sure maybe you're not clicking with everybody. Sure, so absolutely. you know how much of it is how good the therapist is versus chemistry. Love the question, and the reason is I love it is because it's such an evolving process. If I'm helping somebody find a therapist, using this as an example, I'm going to go back to when I was first looking for a therapist. I knew I wanted a woman. Why? Just because I felt like there was stuff inside that I wanted to process with a feminine energy. After a while, I realized I would literally go through therapists because I realized I would reach a certain point with them. I was kind of doing the work. I kind of felt like I would hit end posts where that person wasn't willing and I had to find somebody deeper and longer. For me, it's important that the therapist is committed to themselves and their own life process as they are with their clients. That to me, and again, I might be off and a lot of people might not kind of understand what I'm saying, but, or care that their therapist is doing the work on themselves. For me, that's the most important thing. Am I working with a therapist that's evolving? Because if that therapist is seeking evolving, then they're going to be seeking more. I've been to therapists where they don't dig deep enough. So it really depends on how much work the person seeking the therapist is really seeking. If they're doing it just because, oh, you know, my wife wants me to go and they're going to talk, find somebody that maybe the same sex, if it's a guy, maybe just find a male that can relate which can be very helpful just relating, maybe not push them too deeply, but just relating. I think it's really just getting a feel for asking your own questions. What do I want to get out of it? I really want to go deeper. I really want more out of my relationship. And you have to ask the questions of the therapist. Typically, you go online, you find a therapist and you kind of stay with it because you're like, oh, I stayed with it. I committed to it and I don't want to bum this person out. You've got to treat therapy like it's any other, it's work. And you have to ask You got to want it just like a job, just like wanting your fans, wanting your team to like, you got to get committed to it. And you really want somebody that can kind of drive you and coach you to go deeper. That's kind of the way I look at it. I'm not saying it's the right way. So Bill, in our business, what we notice a lot is a lot of people think when they go to a therapist, when they're in crisis, they think that's therapy. And I would argue that's not therapy. Walking you off the ledge isn't therapy. That's just to make sure you don't fall. But what we notice a lot is after they're done crisis, they don't want to come back for the therapy and they don't understand that that's the real work. How do you get that client to understand that I know you're not in crisis anymore, 
but let's make sure you don't get back in crisis. That's the million dollar question. I would say just kind of thinking of maybe a specific person that I know that went through this and didn't want to do the work. What I realized the work for me was to continue to add, and I talked about this a couple hours ago, asking the questions of, okay, how did you get here? Oh, you know, this happened at my boss and I lost my job or whatever. And this. You just got to keep asking the questions and letting them, if you can help them peel back how they got here, how they got to the crisis, peel back. And at some point they're going to go earlier than their current life circumstance. Oh, you know, when I was a teenager, something happened. They have to be curious enough about their own life. If they're not curious enough about their own kind of well-being or doing a little bit more, it's very tough, Steve. It's some folks, I never give up on a soul, but there's some folks where I, in my counseling practice, go, listen, I'm going to stay in touch with you because I'm thinking about you. And that's a powerful thing. If you're a therapist, I mean, I still have clients. They're not clients anymore that stay in touch with me because I'm always thinking. I'm thinking about them because I care, because I care about Bill. I care about them. Trying to get them to care about themselves, you can only do so much. It's maybe not, I don't have a good answer to the question, but it's really trying to peel it back and asking if they know you're present for them and you care about them, that might help. And it takes a unique therapist to really give everything because it can be draining. And that's another powerful thing I want to say is when you really care about other people, you do kind of absorb their energy because you really want that empathy is an, an exercise in energy. That's why you, especially a therapist, has always got to be working on self because you got to maintain your own energy and you're kind of opening up to your own feelings because they're carrying a lot of energy. And when you're dealing with other people's feelings, it can be draining. So it's just being with that person and just tell me care. How consistent are, do you see, and I don't know if it's generational from a relationship standpoint, marriage counseling, that is, do you see the same types of problems? And I don't know if I'm articulating that well enough, but meaning like 40-year-olds, are you always seeing the same types of problems within Absolutely. The it's a great question. I see some very powerful themes. Themes. My, good, themes. good. Yeah, yeah, thank couples, you for that. Yeah, in couples counseling. <laughs> the biggest theme, again, my boy Carl Jung, I say my boy just because I think he was one of the most thoughtful and intelligent human beings for the last couple hundred years, is the unlived life of the parent. I'll use 40-year-olds as a great example. The 40-year-olds come in and either the male or female or both are at a point in their lives where they don't feel fulfilled. And that lack of fulfilled is that unlived peace. A piece of them feels like there's an unlived life that they haven't been able to get at. They don't know how to get at it. Now they have kids. They're stuck in a job. And it's like this malaise. It's like, I call it the suburban malaise. Because I can't tell you how many parties I've been to where you're talking to the wife and she's like, I'm just not that happy. Like my husband's fine, but like, who am I? It's like a loss of identity because they came into the marriage in the late 20s and 30s. So the theme is you come in and I'm Bill and I'm a successful business guy and I get into a marriage and then I'm just trundling along at my job. And then suddenly I wake up and I'm 42 years old with three kids in the suburbs. I'm like, who am I? What am I doing? So there's this real kind of loss of identity, loss of a sense of meaning. Probably one of the most powerful themes. In fact, originally my, the first book was going to be Suburban Melee's Death Rebirth in the Suburbs. Because the only way you can get at that meaning is, guess what? Sitting quietly, getting those emotions to come up because that's where the meaning is. So that's one of the most powerful themes is the kind of loss of self, especially when you're having kids. And I'd say the other big theme is, and it's not a shocker, it's pretty common, is the relationship that you have with your mom and dad, that's playing out almost on an hourly basis in relationship. Right. You come in and you ask the either one, the male or female, the mom or the dad, I'm doing the counseling session with and you say, tell me about your relationship with your mom and dad. And you get that piece right there, maybe five or 10 minutes and you realize how she's behaving in relationship 
is 100% based on this or 95%. And he's the same way. That's why you have to go back and look at those archetypes and how you are dealing with the energy of mom and dad because it's all playing out. So the theme of how our parents, as I say, your parents are in your marriage. Your grandparents are in your marriage right now. Why? Because the emotions you're carrying that you inherited from them are driving your behavior. So that's a big theme. Parents in your relationship, unlived life. Man, you just reminded me. So I had lunch with a gentleman yesterday and he didn't ask me to ask this question, but I'm asking it. Do you mind me giving a scenario? So, yeah, yeah, so he's got a really interesting dynamic. So he's married, God, 10, 12 years, 15 years maybe. And he came to find out a few years back that his father-in-law took out a loan in his daughter's name. So he not only he took out like 60 grand, 80, I forgot the nominal amount, it's a enough. decent amount of money. Yeah. And then he also found out. So then he hires a detective or something to do a little more digging on his wife's sister. And the, the father took out a loan in their name also. So he's got this dynamic now with his wife. The wife's in denial. He even had to get a lawyer to show that these are criminal issues. And the wife still invites the parents over to the house. And the, the father-in-law is a sociopath, I guess. He's never apologized. He's never taken any ownership for this. He can even talk about the Bernie Madoffs of the world as if Bernie's this horrible guy. Wow. Where do you go with that? And I know the wife. She's fantastic. And they have this great relationship. But this is a, I mean, it's driving a rod right between them. The first step there is that he and she, the wife and the husband, it's about them, right? So you have the crazy father-in-law, that's all out there and that's powerful and it's imposing, but that's really not important. I know it feels important, it looks important, it smells important. What's important is what are they doing with it? So it's driving a wedge because she's not willing to own her piece. All she has to do is begin the process of opening up and going, wow, this is important. So it's really about the two of them. So this is the most powerful thing I think about relationships. Father-in-law, steal money, whatever it is. Again, to me, that's noise. It's important. Don't get me wrong. Death of the family, this is super important. But the most important thing is how do my wife and I respond to the outside world together? What's it doing to our relationship? Is it deepening it or is it separating it? Is it pushing us apart? If it's pushing us apart, why is it pushing us apart? Oh, because Bill hasn't processed that sadness and he's afraid to do it. Therefore, she's drifting away. So it's all about, okay, this crisis is triggering what? Whatever it's triggering, if they're doing it together, relatus, understanding what's happening inside Bill and bringing it to the altar relationship, Linda. So in this, I would love to chat with them and just see (laughs) where she's at. Where is she? If it's not important to her or she's not willing to look at it, then they've got the work to do. All he can do is the work on him. Nothing else. Now, again, if he's got a creditor coming by and he's got to do the actual physical work and make sure that the house and the kingdom's okay, but it's all about the emotional response that they're having separately and what they're bringing to the altar. So what do they do? I mean, they're in therapy. They're in therapy. They're, they're literally, we had to cut out from our lunch so we could go. I'm curious. I'll tell you this. If I was a therapist, I would spend a lot of time getting her to talk about what it's making her feel. How's that making you feel? Oh, it's not a big deal. Okay, then there's a lot of work to do with her. It's not good or bad that she has to realize what's happening, how powerful it is, how it's affecting not just the two of them, it's going to affect generations to come because his resentment and anger is dripping into the space in between in the marriage. And that's why I don't know if they have kids. If they have kids, that drip of anger, resentment and frustration is now going to be living inside the kid. Like, Mary, do you want your kids? Like, this is going to go down the line. That's how big it is. You and I talk about it all the time. How big is that space that the two people are creating? Well, it's just everything. (laughs) 
It's everything. <laughs> everything that everything. you are yeah. was from the space in between your parents. Yep. And the kids are, uh, I think, nine and six or seven. So, something like you know, that. Mary, so do, you prime... have, do you love your kids? Oh, I love my kids. Great. So now it's time to really delve into what's actually happening inside of you, what your dad's behavior is doing to your kids' kids. It's bigger. It's so much bigger than then the current thing, right? We just look at the current thing, but like, Mary, are you willing to help not only your kids, because how you process it is how your kids are going to process. Do you want your son to behave that way? He could easily behave that way 15 years from now. Oh, no, he wouldn't. He would never do that. Tell me how it wouldn't happen because we're just electrons and that the energy that you're putting in is just going to be sent down the line. It's really interesting, Bill, isn't it? We go, well, our children are learning this behavior from us. They learn from their grandparents. But we say our kids wouldn't do that, even though it's complete learned behavior. They're going to do exactly what they've learned. There's no other way to it. But yeah. somehow we find a way to convince ourselves because if we don't do it that way, we'll have to do some work on ourselves. Exactly. Because rather- it comes back to us anyway. I love the fact you put that out there because I spent a lot of time working with kids, suicidal t- kids and teenagers and stuff before I got more focused in, in couples counseling. And it was always funny where the parent to your point, would come and say, Bill, how do we fix Johnny? Johnny's fine, actually. I want to spend time with you. No, 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 I'm not. No, I'm not willing to do that, right? No. So, okay, Johnny and I are going to keep doing the work, but if you don't start kind of getting at what's driving your reaction in your marriage, then Johnny's going to continue to struggle. Oh, no, he's, can you just fix Johnny? That's the whole thing. And listen, owning your stuff is painful, but it's the only way to live, in my opinion. So we use a phrase, in our office, and it's parents says, I don't understand why I can't get my effing kid to stop effing swearing. <laughs> and you literally go, what? <laughs> exactly. And I don't want to be too flippant about it. It's, it's hard being a parent. It's hard. Let's just put it out there. This is not easy stuff. There's no manual. It's harder to adopt a dog than it is to have a child. Like literally, you, the nonprofits come in, they interview you. I had somebody like talk to my friends, is Bill okay to foster a dog or adopt a dog? Like, you just have a kid, you have no idea. So I just want to put it out there. It's not easy being a parent, but owning your life is the most important thing you can do for your child. So what Carl Jung is saying is the unlived life of the parent is the curse on the child. Everything unlived in Bill, everything unsaid, everything unfelt is going to live in my girls and it's going to live in their kids. So you know what, Bill? Get on the cushion and understand why you're feeling that way because if you don't, your grandkids are going to suffer. All right. That leads me to two questions. My first question is at how important is potentially getting children in therapy early? You talked about it about an hour ago. It's really important to get kids to be get in a comfortable space to talk. That's all your job is, my job as parents, as therapists, as running behavioral health. It's creating a space. And so if any adult can create a space for a child, whether it's in a therapeutic session or just in the living room with two parents that are present and available, you will put deep roots of kind of maturity or deep roots of being, it's okay to share how you feel. Because if you teach a young child that their feelings are the most important thing and understanding them, which they won't fully understand until they get older, but at least, you know what? I have a comfortable, safe place where I can share how I feel. I can share my dreams. I can share my longing. I can share my sadness. So if it's in a therapeutic session or a setting, fantastic. If it's just two parents that are able to hear their kids talk about things that are uncomfortable, then that's as good as therapy. And I think that word uncomfortable is more powerful than just from the face of it. We as human beings have to get really comfortable with being uncomfortable and the uncomfortable question. So at some point, if you do enough work, your good therapist will get you to a place 
where they're going to ask that really uncomfortable question and you're either going to go left or right. Right's going to dive in. Left is, you know, I can't get at it. But if you can get comfortable with everything uncomfortable in you, your kids are going to get used to those uncomfortable feelings, whether they have a rough time in eighth grade or they're about to enter college, whatever it is. They get used to, it's like the muscles uncomfort, what we do in our generation or what we do in this day and age. What do we do? We do everything. I call it ING-ing. We do everything except it feel. Running, working, masturbating, whatever it is, whatever drugs we take, coffee, alcohol, we do everything except feeling. We don't want to feel. And so if we can create a space where other people can feel and share, then that's a good thing. Anyway, that was a long-ended. That was good. How much of what we're doing would you say is conscious versus unconscious? And then <laughs> I know I'm opening up Pandora's box here. And then again, how much control can you get under? The science is 95% of our daily life is unconscious. I'd say to any and all out there, and this isn't Bill Talk, and this is just the fact that the more you sit and open up to your feelings, you go way below 95. In other words, you become a lot less unconscious and you start becoming more conscious. All So the Hindus say, there's only three reasons why we're here. Consciousness, awareness, and bliss. Let's forget about bliss. They don't mean bliss like just blissing out. Consciousness and awareness. The only reason we are on the planet is to become aware of what's in our limbic, non-physical, emotional body, become aware of it and bring it into the physical plane. So how do you do that? You open yourself up to your non-physical self. How much is unconscious? A lot of our life's unconscious. Each year that goes by, biological, this is a fact. Each year that goes by, especially by the time you get to your 40s, if you haven't breathed deeply, kind of open yourself up, open the heart up. Men don't die of heart attacks for men are a broken heart. It's an unprocessed heart. It's an unconscious heart, a heart that hasn't been able to open up. Each year you wait to become more conscious, i.e. to open up to your feelings, you almost shorten your life it's a one-to-one -one ratio. I'll have to come back with the math, but I'm telling you, trust me, if you haven't kind of dug in a little bit deeper, you don't really get to complete your life. And that's really what the goal is, complete your life. How important would you say are the relationships, and I don't just mean marriage, but just having good relationships in general impact the relationship that you do have with your significant other? So Harvard just finished that study last year. It's a 60-year study. It's one sentence. What we realize is there's nothing more important in life than relationships. The health of the community, the health of self, success, feeling successful. And so the word relationship can be relationship with self. It can be relationship with the community. It can be relationship with God. It can be relationship with all the above, spouse. And relationship with others starts with, let's take a guess, self. <laughs> so how important are relationships? It wasn't me. It was Harvard. It's a pretty good school up Northeast. There's nothing more important. Like, that's it. <laughs> and so how do we get at the most important thing is we spend time alone and with a therapist or both. So do introverts have a upper hand in being getting there? Do you know anything about that? Or do you have an uh, opinion? <laughs> sure, I have an opinion. If I just dig deep enough. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess an introvert. I don't really know, but I believe an introvert is someone who is uncomfortable or can be a little bit uncomfortable sharing with others because that's just their DNA. They might have a powerful access to their inner world or their inability to share with others reflects also an inability to share self and be vulnerable self. So I wouldn't consider myself have a good opinion on that yeah, one. It's I'm a great very question. curious. Yeah, I'm very curious because an introvert, for the most part, they're garnering their energy by being by themselves. Yes. 
yes. versus the extrovert that's that's putting it out there. Yeah. But again, yeah. then the extrovert could be superficial because that's yeah. kind of the. I think the fun part of working with an introvert, in my experience, is getting them to talk and feel and, and emote more, to bring it out more. And it's amazing what's stored up in people's inner world. I mean, to me, it's better than any TV show, any movie ever created because <laughs> your life, Adam, your life, Steve, my life, our inner world is pretty magical. I mean, there's some crazy stuff inside, but there's some magic in there that we want to share. We don't know how to share. We feel ashamed to share, but when we get to share it, it makes us stand taller. Like, wow, I get to share a piece of my life. So on that point, Bill, and I think we see a lot of it in that people aren't sharing that information. They think they're so isolated and they're going through it themselves. Our agency sees it a lot, particularly with the teens, where they don't communicate face-to-face. They don't have to have that, any of that type of contact. But at the end of the day, that's really where all the value is. And sharing that is really, it's this weird thing. The more you give away, the more you get, the more powerful you become, the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are over yourself and all your relationships. How are we going to get our kids to stop being able to do this, get off that phone and start understanding <laughs> humanity exists and there should be more empathy than another Pandora's box opening up right yeah. now. So it just made me think really quickly. I just saw a piece of research come out that talked about longevity, people living long. Sicily, there's a couple places. And what they realized, did you see that? Yeah. What they realized I is exactly. I don't closeness, want to your thunder. Yeah. closeness, right? Feeling contained and feeling part of something. The suburbs were an invention by the US. Can I interrupt before yes, you go into the, into the suburbs? So, of course. do you know one of the things that I found most interesting about that study? And I don't know how recently you read this. And I'll regurgitate it poorly, but you'll get where I'm going with this. Is that so these people that lived the longest, they were the most centurions that they drank, smoked, and yet they still, the thing that kept them alive and as healthy as they were, were these relationships. The big R, these, yeah. the relationships. So I'm sorry. To, I read this too. It's very interesting. It's a whole different experience of not being lonely. <laughs> yeah. So again, I go back to the suburban melees. The suburbia was essentially invented post-World War II because we felt like we needed space. We needed to be out in the rural part. But if you look at the real original rural communities, they were kind of close-knit families and they were together and there was real communities. Now we live in these big houses separated from each other. And it's, I think we're probably the most depressed country in the world. How do we get millennials? How do we get kids to get off their phones? Number one, we got to get off them. Like set the example. I just saw France banned phones in the junior highs. One of the most mature I said to my friend, oh, there are still some adults out there making some really good decisions. The French made a really good decision. Get those kids off the phone. I don't know how to do it. It is the number one debate and heatly debated topic in my household is phones. I understand why kids need to be on them just for communication, but it's so overused and it's actually killing the brain. So when we go out to dinner with any of the kids, we make them all put their telephones in the middle of the table. And the first one that touches it has to pay for dinner. Ooh, that's a good one. And it's funny how they don't reach for it. Instead, they have to communicate with us and let us know what's going on. And it's so surprising how enriching their lives are when they do communicate. I mean, it's fun. (laughs) It is really fun to listen to. Yet they don't seem to grasp it with each other. So you just created a new paradigm because I'm going to do the same thing and my kids are a little cheap like me. So nobody's going to be reaching for their phone. So thank you, Steve. That could be the biggest insight and lesson I get today. But it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I feel bad for this generation. Kind of like my parents used to say, oh, I feel bad for you guys because you have all these choices. Back, This is back in the 80s and 90s. I do. I feel like these kids are inundated with so much information that they can't find themselves in all this information. And their lives are lived almost in relationship or trying to relate. They relate 
to somebody else who's having a bigger experience. Therefore, their experience isn't enough. Yeah, it's diminished. It's diminished. But the reality of it is that's fake. The reality is that they took 25 of those pictures so they could show you one and make it look like, look at my wonderful life. But at the same time, when people stopped liking it, they're the lonely ones again. It's very secular. I agree. And what it always comes back down to is it really doesn't matter what the rest of the world's doing. What matters is how is Bill doing in his life. So if I see pictures of guys like traveling the world and all that stuff, if my life is feeling lived and complete, that's beautiful. If my life's feeling incomplete and frustrated and anger filled or not, I don't feel whole, then that image is going to create even more of that unlived feeling. So it's really always comes back to if you're a grounded, mature, owning your life and feeling like you're evolving and growing and becoming who you're supposed to be, then people could be traveling the world doing the thing. You're happy for them because you're happy and you feel complete. And a lot of these kids these days don't feel happy and complete. Not that we all didn't have our own normal teenage angst and all that stuff, but it all comes back to self. If I can feel complete in my life, if I'm doing my life's work, if I'm singing my song, if I'm owning my life, I want everyone to do the same. But when I feel less than, I want everyone else to feel less than. So back to this whole loneliness thing. I can't remember if we had talked about this or not before, but in 2017, the World Health Organization identified stress and loneliness as the biggest concern. That's an epidemic, Mm. more so than smoking and drinking and things of that nature. And then I think it was a month or two ago that suicides have overcome uh, car, car accidents, yes, you know, right. yeah, which is a pretty amazing statistic. I forgot the exact number, but just the fact that suicides, and again, you peel that back a little more, it's the suicides as a result of loneliness and stress. In 2017, the UK, they have now a minister of loneliness oh, as man. a result. Yeah, as a result of that. So doesn't Japan. I didn't know that Japan either. Japan has one as well. And it's, this is really an epidemic. And we really have to be paying attention to this. These kids are really getting lost. They're very, very lonely. These tools they're using have no human compassion whatsoever. This is a generation of children with no empathy. Look what they do to each other on these social media websites. It's crazy. So what do you recommend? Besides, I mean, I, I really like the idea that putting the cell phones in the middle of the table yeah, for love dinner. That. But what are My other- daughters are listening. I love that, ladies. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are other things? What do you recommend? I mean, there's some pros, obviously, to some of the technological sure. advances, the way that we live, things of that nature. But it is really removing a lot of the human element, that relationship, pulling us farther away. Any other suggestions, ideas surrounding that? No I- pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for me, it's about- what can I do to create positive change? I can talk about it. I can belly who I can complain and I can argue with my kids about cell phone use, or I can own my life and do something productive. How do I do? I start with understanding how it's making me feel and sharing how it's making me feel and trying to create a space for teens or anybody where they can understand of what is driving their behavior. Why are they on their phones? So I think all we can do is try to create I ran a juvenile justice program for about three years. And what we were trying to do is create a space where it's safe, where kids could come in, they could be who they are. We create boundaries. We get them to do some work, eat healthy. We're trying to create a space where they could become whatever it is they're trying to become. That's my job as a parent. And so it comes back to, am I feeling whole? Am I feeling complete? Well, if there's slivers of me that don't feel complete, then I can't do a super good job of trying to help other people be complete. But I think as adults, as 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, whatever our age is, is helping these kids just to understand and get them to communicate. I think what you're doing at the dinner table is powerful. Get them to communicate and get them to talk about who they are. 
any good questions that you can kind of like some lob questions that you can get the ball rolling with people? It's funny when I, when I ask sometimes my daughter's questions, they're like, no, I'm fine. I'm like, how do you feel? I'm fine. Right. It's a classic kind of teenage. They don't really want to share. And I guess each age is going to be a little each different. different but I yeah. don't know. So I've got in mind kind of a late teen male or female in my head right now. And more like I start with what'd you do today? It sounds really pedantic and silly to ask. It's kind of as a basic question. And it gets into what I'm trying to get at is how they felt today. But let's talk about the activity. Oh, I did this. I did this. I went for a run. Oh, good. Oh, when you went for a run, how'd you feel? Oh, I felt really good. I felt creative when I came back and I did some stuff and my, I started writing and drawing. Oh, good. How'd that make you feel? Ultimately, if kids know it's safe, like I said before, if it's safe to feel and to share how they feel, then you're on to something. I had a powerful weekend. I drove my daughter back to Colorado for school, 16 hours in the car, 18 hours in the car. And we just had some great conversations that we hadn't had. After a while, you just start talking. You're looking at the road and you're talking and you're sharing parts of yourself that you haven't shared before. Breakthrough in the relationship. Having breakthroughs in the relationship is just two people getting a chance to share their vulnerability, share their humanity. So I've had very similar experiences with my children and it's wonderful. Let's make it a little more difficult for you. <laughs> Thank you. How do we get them to engage each other? Oh. And I think that is the bigger oh, problem. That's a good one. Can I hold on? Let me go back to that. Yeah, I'm stumped. Each, so each please take it. Each other friends or each other like siblings or both? Friends, their peers, the people they're with, the people they're competing with on Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter. And everybody's trying to up one each other, but they don't do it in a visual way. They don't get to look at each other. They can say nasty things to each other without having to own it. They don't have to look at your facial expression that I hurt your feelings. We get to do it because we get our kids in the car and we drive them to college, right. you know? Yeah. <laughs> but they're in day in and day out. I can give you a perfect example. My son a few years ago was dating a neighbor of ours. And we're all, his family, our family are all together. My son walks up. The girl he's dating is there. And I turn to him and I go, aren't you going to say hi? And he says to me, well, I texted her and she hasn't responded. And I go, she's eight feet from you. Bill, the floor is yours. <laughs> I don't have a good answer, but I see so many kids of that age called 16 up to kind of mid-20s who just don't engage each other. And they're literally sitting next to each other in a pod and texting. And what I've done in the past is get these kids in a room and just whether it's take them out to dinner. Dinner is a powerful spot. We talked about a little bit, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, there's a bunch of research about what families can do to preempt. It came out of the, more of the juvenile space, but three things parents can do to help their kids mitigate potential at-risk behavior. Number one is eat dinner together. Number two is not swear. And number three is clean your room. I know it sounds really Yeah, I, I get rudimentary. number one, trying to figure out number well, two and three. But, but and the reason I'm putting it out there is yeah. because it's interesting when you look at parents, they're trying to figure out there's some basic silly stuff that you can do is have your kid clean their room. Kids don't want to clean their room. Forcing them to do it creates a little bit of order, creates a little bit, your room is a reflection of self, right? Disorder. But anyway, trying to get kids in a room together and stir up conversation. I think that's all, if I can make a contribution to what we're talking about, which is trying to get kids to unlonely themselves. They have to practice on just being by themselves and opening up to that. But after they've done that, hopefully is getting in a room and sharing. And you can't make other friends share. That's the challenge is that they're going to find out who their real friends are. And I think what kids sometimes do is they don't want to know how much that other person cares or doesn't care about them. They just want to, oh, they're my friend. We hang out. We keep it cursory. We keep it above and we don't go too deep. Because I think there's that sense where if I get vulnerable and ask for something and they don't respond, that's not really the person that we're not really that strong of friends. So 
I don't have an answer. I wish I did. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. I bet you have an opinion. I got an opinion. <laughs> awesome. Not a very good one. So, Bill, I really want to get back to being in that dark room. And at the end of the day, it's really about being really vulnerable. What are we getting out of that? Why be vulnerable? It's a great question. <laughs> I like to call it vitamin V, vulnerability. When you go back and feel what it's like to be in third grade and what you loved and didn't love and everything you felt in your belly and your heart, that's the entrance to vulnerability as an adult. You're going back to that inner child. When you do that, you realize that everybody else has a third grade inner child. Every other person, the road rage that you threw out, the guy that was yelling at you for going through the orange light, your wife, your grandmother, everybody has that vulnerable, sad, beautiful, joyous little kid inside. So as you become vulnerable, you realize that everyone else is going through the same freaking thing. So what comes out of that is when you come out of that space, you've been in your room, you're sitting meditating for 20 minutes and you had some tears from who knows, you miss your grandfather and you realize that you miss your kids, your dad's been dead, whatever it is, you just, oh, that sadness, that longing, that sense of vulnerability. And you come out of that and what's happened is your body's opened up, your blood flow has increased from relaxing, your emotions have actually created more space inside. But the most important thing is you realize you come out of your room and you see the mailman and you see, you realize he's got a third grader inside. And you see your wife getting really mad at the kids and you sense her third grader getting mad. It's not her, the 50-year-old. It's that young part of her that doesn't feel fulfilled getting mad. So you have this automatic empathy for other people. It's the most powerful emotion. That's why vulnerability is so important is that you really get to feel what it's like to be human. When Bill gets to feel like, when I get to feel like, God, that raw Bill, there's this powerful sense of understanding. You can't necessarily put words to it, but you have this powerful understanding of my boss is in that space, is like everybody's in that space. And you almost have this kind of crazy, joyous sense of like, if they can get to that space and get vulnerable with themselves, they're going to have this insight. What's the insight? That everybody's going through it. It's this commonality that we're human. We're all in the same boat together. I think they've said this research says there's only seven real emotions. With vulnerability giving us access to all those, vulnerability gives us access to the sadness, but the joy after feeling vulnerable is 10 times what it is if you haven't touched your vulnerability. And that is a money back guarantee. The deeper you go into your sense of longing, the deeper they go into that sense of wanting dad to hold you or your grandfather to be present or whatever that is, the deeper you go, the bigger the joy. So if you want big joy, unfortunately, it takes some work. You have to get into the big V. You got to get into that sense of longings. That's the exercise. That's what vulnerability brings. It brings a sense of understanding and knowledge that every single other person guarantee is going to do the same thing. And you're trying to encourage them to do the same thing. And if you don't, if they're not willing to, it's almost like you go, I get it. Someday they will, maybe next lifetime. And there's a sense of fullness. There's a sense of like, it's okay. It's all okay because they're going to get at it sooner or later. If I can be present and help them, especially if it's my wife or kids, fantastic. But I can't expend too much energy trying to press someone else to get quiet and get vulnerable. All I know is it works. <laughs> so let me ask you this. At what point, vulnerable or not, would you recommend as a therapist mm -hmm. someone that is in counseling or in a relationship throw in the towel? It's a great question. I've run into it a lot. Are you allowed to make that? I don't even know. No. So no, okay. the way typical counseling sessions work with couples when they come in, 
by the time they've gotten to me or any other therapist, things aren't good. <laughs> and so if you're a betting man, you're going to bet against the relationship ultimately working. And I'll even say that. I said, listen, Mary and John, there's a good chance this probably doesn't work. Do you want to jump in? And so the kind of sense they look at me going, well, we're here to make it work. And I said, no, listen, I get it. I'm going to come back. I'm going to answer the question. What I tell them is it doesn't matter what the outcome is of this work. The job that you have, Mary and John, is just, just do the work. Why? Because the space you're creating right now for your kids is really wonky. It's not good. It's anger-filled. It's resentment-filled. It's all this old stuff. And you're going to send that down the line. We've talked about that. So your homework is simply to work on self, bring it to the altar of the marriage, work on self. Just keep doing that. And if you think you're done, let me tell you, you're not really done. <laughs> so to answer the question, it's only when one of the two just decides they don't have the energy, they don't have the desire, and they don't want to team up. For me, the biggest, most powerful thing in my relationship when I realized having my wife in my life made me better, stronger, and was just simply better for me. We're better. I'm better with her in my life. So my commitment to her and my marriage was indissolvable. It was never going to be dissolved because I just knew it was better. But there can be a point, Adam, where one of the two realizes he or she's not better for me. It's actually less good. They can keep doing the work separately. They can bring it to therapy, to couples counseling. But at some point, they realize that's too much energy. I'm better served to let it go. And that's really what it is, is just letting it go. Often, if they've done some of the work and it's been powerful enough, even though they break up, they stay friends, that relationship is even better. Oh, yeah, and there's a lot the of time. research yeah. on that where once both parties eventually own what they did and didn't do in their marriage and they've been divorced for 10 years, the friendships are even more powerful. I can't tell you, I know couples that have been divorced, but they're friends. That's a beautiful thing. That's all you ask for. That's what you want. Forget about the outcome. Do the work. Yeah. I got a good friend that I was away with this summer that he had a divorce. He blamed her. Fast forward a little bit of time, he must have uh, gone <laughs> gone deep on himself. Guns. And yeah. you know, he owned it. And to your point, she's his best friend now. So they talk all the time. They raise their kids. They live in neighboring towns. And he said the relationship is, is 10 times better than what it was when they're married. And it is what it is. If he could have rolled out on the clock and yeah. be who he is today, yeah. he would have. But it is what it is. And to your point. That's beautiful. I want to come back to the question of vulnerability. I want to come to back to men and vulnerability. In the old days, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago, boys were trained to be warriors. And our Hollywood version of a warrior is on a horse with a spear or something and killing. That wasn't the way of the warrior. The way of the warrior was to do vision quests and to break the boy down physically to get at the spiritual part of him, to get to that non-physical, to get to the emotional part. Boys were trained to be emotionally open and vulnerable because the power of knowing oneself at its deepest level, at the male deepest level, is the warrior male. And if forced to fight, they certainly would fight and did fight. But the point is that they were trained to become one with themselves. Yoga means union of physical and non-physical. That's what all the ancients taught. In fact, the bar mitzvah, as I talked about last time, at the age of 13, this is ancient culture. I'm talking 5,000, 10,000 years ago. The elders would come grab the young boys and they would take them out, wrench them from the family and take them out to do vision quests because that was their way of getting to their vulnerability, to opening them up to the spirit side of them, to the non-physical side of them, to the emotional side of them. That is the job of a male. And our community doesn't have places to do that anymore. We need places for young men and women, but men in particular, to open up, for boys to be comfortable being vulnerable. 
vulnerability is a male power and it's our culture has turned it all around. You see these images of men, they're tough, they're making all this money. That's a beautiful thing. I love it. But the inner world of a male has to be open. You have to be raw and you have to get in it. That's the true power. And you're going to have to trust me on that. And if you don't believe me, I get it. But if you're willing to do some of the work, eventually you're going to come back and go, wow, this is powerful stuff. I really understood how I felt as a four-year-old or as a fourth grader. And that's really made me see the world differently. In that regard, in a lot of ways, it's not undifferent than a boxing match. Every boxer knows his vulnerabilities because he had to go through them. They hurt oftentimes. And then they learned how to protect them when they needed to. But for some reason, our society now says you have to be perfect. You always have to be strong. You can't understand who you are. You just go through it, not be in it. Great point. It's, we need more adults in the world. And when I say adult, men and women, but in particular men that understand themselves and they can help others understand who they are. And that's really our role here. You talk about boxing, you talk about good coaches. If I'm a good coach, if I'm a good parent, I'm creating that arena for success. What's success for my kids or what's success for my counseling clients is them knowing who they are. Not knowing Bill, not knowing their boss. One thing only, knowing self. The path to completing one's life is through self. It's through that heart. And on average, I believe the research is men die between eight and 10 years faster than women. Why? It's their broken, unprocessed, unwept heart. That's what we're here to do. And our job as male adults is to be present. I know I talked about that last time. It's to be present, to be aware, to listen to how we feel so we can listen to how other people feel. And if I can be present for you, Adam, or present for you, or available for my colleagues, for my friends, then I've done a good chunk of the work that I'm here to do. If I can't, we all want to contribute, but we have to start inside. And our contribution to the outside will be so much more powerful if we've really done kind of that inner vulnerability undoing on the inside. What do you say to the couple that broke up or got divorced, then did the work, and now they want to get back together? Love it. I love it. It's an evolved relationship. I always tell when I see uh, late 20s, early 30-year-old women that are single, whether it's clients or stuff like that, I always say, never date a man who hasn't had his heart broken. Yeah. Find somebody who's had their heart broken. Why? Because they're aware, they're sensitive to themselves and the world around them. A sensitive simply means they can sense feelings. They can sense their own emotions. If they want to get back together and they've done the work, man, that is just a home run. It's a beautiful thing. And again, especially if they have kids, let's be clear. Nobody should be working on the relationship because of the kids. They should be working on the relationship because of themselves and their desire to complete their lives. And if they do that, their kids are going to be okay. Their kids are going to be better than okay. They're going to be fine. Yes, you want to stay in a marriage because it's good for the kids. But if you stay in a marriage and the vibration's bad, you're actually not doing them any favor. In fact, you're doing them a disservice. So if a couple's broken up, they've done some work and they're willing to come back together, that's as good as it gets. Mm. I love that. Changing gears a tad. What are your thoughts? My opinions. On, on the, <laughs> your, <laughs> Lots of them. <laughs> your opinions on the couples that hide their past. So like just for example, the guy that maybe he smoked pot in college and never even told his wife, <laughs> you know, or the person who used to hang out with a certain type of crowd. And for some reason or another, either they've lied or they just did not share that part of their history with their significant other. And I see it all the time. I mean, it's I don't understand it, but I see it all the time. What that does is not sharing the whole truth and nothing but the truth creates a slight veil. And so the dynamic, the energetic dynamic of the relationship isn't full. 
it's not complete. It's the, the channels aren't wide open. So there's probably plenty of examples where things are hidden and the relationship somehow works and it's going fine and it's completed and they have a great life. Often though, there is an unconscious realization that my spouse or my partner hasn't shared something and there's that sense of doubt or there's a lingering something that you can't put your finger on, which magnifies over time and can create a real scar, can create a real separation. My response to your question is, what are you holding back? And the way to, the exercise to getting at it, being comfortable sharing it is to go back into those moments and understand why you did it and come to terms with it yourself. The reason we don't share it with other people is because we haven't accepted it in ourselves. I'm not going to share something with you unless I've kind of really molded over and realized, okay, I did what I did because it was the best decision I could make back then. And so getting to be open with your spouse means you got to go back and close the loop inside yourself. And that might take a long, long time. And if you're not willing to do that, there will always be a little bit of a gap. What my goal has been in my relationship whether I've done it or not, I don't know. Jury's out, hopefully, <laughs> is leave nothing on the table. Okay, that's fair. I want everything to burn in the fire. I want every part of me to be open to my wife that she knows every single part of me, my sadness, the fourth grader, she knows every young part and immature retardedness of me. I know that's a word that my kids don't like me to use, but I want her to know every part because if I don't leave anything out, I'm encouraging her to not leave anything out and hopefully It allows me to complete my life, which I think sends the energy down the line for my kids to complete their life. My goal is for my kids and their kids and the community around me to complete their lives. And I feel like I do it by example. Awesome. So now I'm going to throw out a question. Actually, Stephen, do you have any questions for Bill before? Because I've got one final question that might take a little bit to answer. It's either going to be a quick answer or it's going to take a little bit. Well, it is Bill. Uh, exactly. <laughs> not sure it's going to be quick. <laughs> but uh, I don't. I just want to say thanks for having me. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Bill, take a seat back. I've been digesting a lot between these past conversations and any conversation that we have. If I could ask you to boil down one or two pieces of advice for couples, I guess it probably relates to more than just couples, but in the spirit of this conversation, what would you say that is, what that would be? It's what I typically say the first time I sit down with a couple. I say, do this for posterity. Do the work for times in the future that you might not ever be aware of, your kids and your kids' kids. Work meaning? The work on the relationship, which is really- On themselves. Exactly. So I'll clarify. Thank you. Yep. Yep. No, no, it's great. The advice I give is do the work on self, bring it to the marriage, and forget about the outcome. Do work on self, sit quietly, do maybe separate therapy away from this arena. All right. That's going to be another question. Yep. I often do therapy with singularly with that individual and then bring the spouse in at another session. It's powerful because I can pick up stuff that maybe he or she was afraid to say and willing to kind of get it out knowing that I know a little bit. Do you meet with both of them individually or just one of them? Often I do. Often I do. Yep. So the big piece is when I say do it for posterity, do the work on self because it's good for you, which will be good for the marriage, which will be good for generations to come. That's how big it is. I know that sounds dramatic, might even sound new agey, but trust me, we are living the life we live right now. The moment we are experiencing, what we feel right now is a culmination of all the moments that happened in a deep history of ourselves and our legacy and our ancestors. 
We are living the moment right now that was generated from hundreds of years back. And so the work you do now will change the trajectory of the moments that your kids' kids will have. That's how big it is. And if you don't want to do that work, you're kind of giving up on a bigger community. Do it for yourself. But the bigger picture is when you feel like it's part of the bigger goal, it typically will drive a person to go, you know what? Okay, I don't really feel like doing it for me, but it's good for me. But if it helps my kids, shoot, I'm going to give it a shot. When I say give it a shot is I'll sit in therapy. Maybe I'll sit quietly. Maybe I'll just be willing to kind of lie down and count down and pretend, go back to fourth grade, whatever it is, do the work, but forget about the outcome. The outcome doesn't matter. And you said it before, Steve, couples come in at therapy, go, I don't want a divorce. I want a divorce. They've got the outcome already dictated, which creates an impediment to them doing the work. It's like this relationship's done. Forget about the outcome. It doesn't matter. I always say it doesn't matter where this relationship ends up. And typically, no offense, Mary and John, this thing's probably not going to work, but that doesn't matter. The work is the work. Do it for your kids. Send it down the line. Posterity. We're a bunch of electrons. Send them down the line. What are you sending down the line today? Frustration, anger, angst. I'm mad at my parents. Therefore, I'm mad at my husband. Great. I get it. Beautiful. Now it's a good place to start. You're going to meditate. You're going to go into that anger and angst. You're going to bring it up. You're going to share it with your husband. He's going to understand it better. And guess what? The vibration between you two is going to change, which is going to change what your kids sip on, absorb your fifth grader and your 10th grader absorbing all this angst there'll be less angst, home run. That alone is the work. If you do nothing else but address some of that angst and that unlivedness, that's all. That's all you can ask for. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> I, again, I appreciate you coming in. You're awesome. Always appreciate the time, the insights. I sit here, I feel like I've just had my own personal session. <laughs> yeah, I should probably be writing you a check. <laughs> yeah. How much do we both own? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Appreciate it, Adam. Seriously. Awesome. Make it a great day. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a network-wise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to networkwise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise.